0: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal or financial product advice.
1: Hello Australia and welcome to My Millennial Property. Emily Wallace here with John Pigeon, as always. And today we have a repeat guest. If you've been a long time listener, you might have heard of this guest previously. But if you are new to the podcast or this is the first podcast for My Millennial Property that you are listening to... We are joined by Eliza Owen. She is the Head of Australian Research for Core Logic Australia. Welcome, Eliza. Hey guys, thank you for having me. It's
2: a pleasure to have you back on, Eliza. So we've got some awesome questions for you, such as well as a few listener questions. So let's get into it. All right, so let's roll straight into this headline that sparked my attention a few weeks ago, Eliza. Women buyers move into the property market. Now, when you, as always, when you see a big headline, it's like, oh, I better go and read this and and, uh, see what what all the fuss is about. Uh, It's telling us that women now purchase around 28% of all properties purchased um, now, which seems like a low amount, but the fact is only 29.6% are purchased by males, the rest of it's by couples. Um, So, what do you think has been the major shift in the increase uh, of women buyers into the market, which is a great thing, by the way?
3: Yeah, it is. It is a really good thing. Um, So, The analysis that we did here was really based on a snapshot of our property data universe, where we've tried to infer, I guess, the gender association with ownership of properties across Australia. So we have a snapshot of ownership, which suggests around 26% of properties are owned by females about 29.9% owned by males, and the rest, uh, as you mentioned, have that kind of couple ownership structure. But when we go back and look at the purchasing date of those properties, we find that the share of female purchasing is higher over time. So that's kind of where that that uh, number comes from. Um, we uh, assume that there's just more um, participation in the labor force of of females over time, which has empowered them to, uh, be a part of the property market, higher incomes, the ability to accumulate a deposit. But also there's, there's potentially trends behind this, like people partnering later in life, getting married later in life, and maybe pursuing property purchases, um, before getting married or if they get married. And there's also things like, um, You know, just better financial literacy, I think, because of online resources, podcasts like this, um, that that I think help people become more aware of the importance of property ownership, which is interesting. Like, if we look at the dynamics of male and female ownership that we've done based on our research, it actually shows that men have a much higher stake in investment properties. So the ownership rates of investment properties among men are about 35% compared to about Uh, 24% for women. So that suggests that maybe men have realized property as an investment vehicle and and are more kind of in tune with that than women are. So in some respects, there's still quite a bit to be done. Uh, Another finding was that men tend to own more houses, whereas women have a slightly Uh, a a marginally higher ownership of units in Australia, which is fine. It's good to be involved in the property market, whether you can afford a house or unit, but it does have implications for the uh, gender wealth gap because houses accumulate more value over time. So across Australia, houses have had about um, 6% annualised growth over the past 10 years compared to 4% in units. So a good thing, uh, something that seems to
1: be improving over time, but there's still more to be done. That's very interesting insights as to, well, I think it's really interesting about the percentage related to investment properties, because from what you're talking about there, it it kind of sounds like I'm painting a picture in my head of who are these classic female buyers that are out there, and maybe they are getting their first property in the market, and it is a one or two bedroom apartment or a unit on their own, um, potentially in a big interesting to hear if there's any data around ages of, of who's buying and, and when, but maybe it is, you know, while they're in their career and maybe mid-20s, early 30s, getting in um, and securing that first property, but not necessarily an investment, which probably alludes to the fact that maybe there is more education to be done, particularly when you speak about the gap, um, the, the wealth gap you know, if a female could buy a house as an investment as opposed to their first property being an apartment that they maybe live in, Mm. would that, you know, play into the overall gap changing over time?
3: Yeah, potentially um, helping people to understand the benefits of buying into a larger, more expensive property initially to save on transaction costs and things like that. I guess the other thing that we've been able to derive from the data, because you mentioned age and like when they're buying and I think that would be so good to have but unfortunately it's just not available to us the way that we've done the research so um uh, one of the insights we have is where and we know that rates of female property ownership are higher in high density but I would say more blue chip or more expensive markets generally so the eastern suburbs of Sydney North Sydney and Hornsby the inner suburbs of Melbourne um uh, areas where female home ownership tends to be lower or is inferred to be lower would be areas like um, regional Western Australia, regional Queensland, where you might have more male labour force participation that's concentrated in mining, construction, more highly compensated industries. And even though the female populations and and workforce participation are sort of on par still in those regions. It might be that managers paid more or, you know, uh, have more exposure to parts of the market for, for whatever reason because of the industries they're in.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. Like we we think of our listener group, Emily, and, and it's probably over 60% of all of our listeners are female. So they're definitely getting this education thing under control, aren't they? Um, And, and as you mentioned, Eliza, that age would be really interesting to find out, well, when are they purchasing? And uh, I, I often, my mind shifts to when you mentioned uh, that females are more likely to buy units. Is that a... Is that a safety thing to know, well, I've got a roof over my head and um, uh, I can get in an affordable price in an area where I'm comfortable with? Um, I, I don't know. Is that something to play in that?
3: Yeah, that's a, a really good point and it's a point that a lot of people have made when we talk to them about this research um, and we can't know, right? We've only got this kind of inference of gender ownership we haven't really done surveys as to the intentions behind this ownership but that might be a logical next step for this kind of research my guess would be affordability um but i think that security could reasonably be a part of it i don't know i mean you could argue the other way and say that there's more security in a in a non-strata property as well if you've got your own kind of space or yeah so but but it's a good Good question. And I'd say it probably comes down to things like affordability and, you know, the demographics of the area, potentially a younger professional sort of
1: population that are buying into that inner city unit stock. Just on the word of security, it's an interesting one because my brain went somewhere different when you said security about that, the property type, but also We've actually bought for a number of single females and the one criteria that they do give us is they want to feel safe in the property and therefore a lot of them do want something with a secure entrance as in like an intercom entrance Mm -hmm. and then um, security within the apartment block itself as opposed to being exposed, particularly if they're living on their own you know, in, in a city. So it's it's funny, I know what you mean on security, but it's also maybe why they are drawn more to apartments or larger um, high-density buildings is for, you know, maybe a concierge down the bottom and also intercom access and um, a higher rise where they feel one of many and maybe a bit safer in that environment. That's really interesting,
2: Yep. Yeah, there you go. Well, e- either way we look at it, it's uh, it's a, it's a very good thing that that uh, percentage is increasing. Um and I I know just from experience as you have Emily there's uh, a lot of females are knocking down the door to to buy their own property which is awesome. Um obviously couples I uh, I guess that would also come into joint ventures as well in that couples category I suppose. So, yeah, there's uh Either way, they're taking control either as a a single or a a couple. Let's turn our attention to a bit of devastation that's occurred in the last few months um, and seems to me as though it's occurring all too frequently, and that is the the floods that have happened up on the east coast of Queensland, New South Wales, and the effects that it's having on the ground is is, – outrageous. And places like Lismore, like they've, they've been affected so often in the last 10 years that um, they're, they're throwing their hands in the air saying, what does the future look like for us in the, the area? But I, I just wanted to get your thoughts. And, and I know you wrote an article earlier in the month on this, Eliza, about what plays out for people in those areas going forward? And, and in the previous floods that have occurred in particular Brisbane 2011, what the trends have have meant in the, in the property growth going forwards and how that's been uh, affected?
3: What we did in this analysis was look at how more inundated suburbs performed from January 2011 compared to the broader Brisbane market. So really looking back to that flooding event in 2011 to get a sense of the property market impacts and Brisbane's property market as a whole sort of saw this decline that totaled about you know loss of five percent in in property values more inundated suburbs in the region like Chelmar for example had a decline that was closer to 18 percent and took about eight years to get back to that January 2011 level but <laughs> there's, uh, there's some complexity in that because that decline across Brisbane happened at a time where the market had already started falling in value off the back of cash rate increases through 2010, remembering that the cash rate is probably one of the most important factors that guides property values. And then by 2011, uh, the cash rate had started to be reduced again. So, that could have spurred the recovery trend in the Brisbane property market that we saw broadly and also in those affected suburbs. Uh, So it's hard to isolate exactly what the impact of these floods are on value. Transaction activity did decline, obviously, in the short term because you have so much disruption to physical property. My guess is that because as you sort of alluded to, John, these severe weather events are becoming more intense and they're becoming more frequent, that that's going to have more downward pressure on values. Um, people who were thinking about buying in parts of Brisbane or northern New South Wales might be changing their minds now. I mean, if even if you look at Lismore, like they've had their second one in 100 year flood event since 2017, right? It's... Um, it's awful and it's a real wake-up to how integral or, or just how much we, we really need to start acting on climate change and how it can affect uh, not not just our lives and our livelihoods but uh, finance and, and, and our asset values as well, um, which, of course, is secondary to all of the, you know, human impacts. But, um, yeah, it's something that, that um, I guess... Banking, finance, insurance, uh, real estate, we've got to be more responsive to. And my first thoughts as well were that when you have that devastation from extreme weather events in a property market, nearby markets that are more elevated uh, might attract a premium, um, which I could see happening in a major city like Brisbane. But even hearing some of the stories coming out of Lismore, people's whose, whose houses haven't been affected but their shops have and their schools have and, you know, their pharmacies have and they're having a terrible time even if their house wasn't directly impacted by the floods. So I think it's going to be really damaging for communities like Lismore and maybe if, if there's a premium there it'd be to areas that, are just more elevated like the Blue Mountains or something. But even then you've got bushfire threats. So, yeah, it's a a hard one to call. It's something that we're continuing to collect data on. And I guess once we are able to deliver a a more kind of retrospective view, then we can look at the sales and and property value data around um, what's happened in the past month.
1: It definitely would be an interesting one to keep track of because when you mentioned there about uh, 2011, and, you know, how long it took to get that 18% decrease sort of back up to normal, but that may have been assisted by the fact the cash rate was changing at the time and, you know, things are boosted along. I feel like we're almost in the opposite situation now because there's talks of the cash rate going up, interest rates going up. So um, tracking that data over time and working out how long the bounce back effectively takes, one could only assume that maybe it may take longer. Um, and certainly the idea of, you know, keeping an eye on flood areas or flood prone areas may now really be a criteria that people assess a lot harder than they than they previously have and as you mentioned as well bushfire that's obviously another one that at the time when we had the bushfires in a couple of years back, that was so topical when people were really looking at overlays, even here in Melbourne in areas that um, hadn't had fires in many, many, many years, all of a sudden it was the buzzword, bushfire. And I feel like flood at the moment is is that case. Are there any other, um, without putting on, on the spot too much, but are there any other overlays or factors that um, you have seen potentially impact Pricing or change over time. Flood and bushfire overlays are a really obvious one, but is there anything that sort of springs to mind that over time does have influence on the value of a property? It's a good question, and it's not something
3: that I've looked at um, in depth. But mm-hmm. my my guess would be temperature. Like if we think about climate yeah. as well, I know for Sydney that's a big challenge yeah. because um, there is a lot of development in Sydney's west, and there's a bit of conflict between these development of new estates, the development of an airport, while also ensuring you have adequate kind of tree coverage and, and things like that. So I think that, you know, if if things keep going the way they're going and, and temperatures keep rising and we get more over 40 degree days, um, then western suburbs of Sydney may become a bit less attractive. Um, just because they become less comfortable, more expensive to run air conditioning and things like that. So that, that's another one. But ultimately, I mean, short term, the factors we're looking at would probably be the cash rate, um, the return of overseas migration, levels of um, supply and demand in, in different markets. Uh, those are going to be some of the major determinants that we're looking at across prices in our capital cities.
2: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I thought we were the lucky country, Eliza. It sounds like we're the unlucky country in the last uh, couple of years. But um, I, I just to round out the flood uh, conversation, my feeling like for Brisbane in particular, like the last, the flood they had before uh, 2011 was 1974, I think, which is a full generation really, isn't it? Um, Whereas now in the last 10 years, like it's been pretty constant on everyone's lips um, in some way, shape or form up that way. And whilst they've had really good Growth in that period leading into the floods, this could put a real, um, pardon the pun, dampening effect on the on the growth there. But and I know I've got clients that have been looking at investment properties up there that have literally in the last month turned uh, turned their attention elsewhere, uh, rightly or wrongly. So uh, it, it uh, my feeling is it will stunt that growth or make, uh, slow it down at least uh, in some way, shape or form. But interesting to see how it plays out into the into the future and. Whether Because we have got more and more data through the likes of yourselves to present to us uh, without even leaving our lounge room, how we can make really uh, accurate and up-to-date decisions as opposed to 1974 where we didn't really have much to go on other than a um, gut feel. 100%.
1: Um, We are going to take a very quick break and when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about migration um, and what that might look like beyond 2022 and how it influences the market. So, we'll be right back. So, Eliza, obviously, there's a lot of different factors that come into play when we look at what drives the market. You know, there's no one definitive thing that really influences the market. There's so many micro and macro factors that come into play. But one thing that is uh, certainly the talk of the town at the moment, I've certainly noticed in conversations, is what is going to happen, you know, Now that the borders are open and people are returning or potentially relocating um, to Australia. So I'd love to understand a bit more about any predictions or um, any data that influences what overseas migration will have um, in terms of impact on the market moving forward. The starting point, again, I'd I'd say would
3: be to look back at the onset of closed international borders for Australia, so March 2020. And from that point on, the main impact was a sharp drop off in rental values across the areas where we would usually expect overseas arrivals and international migrants to live in Australia. And those were areas like inner city, Sydney, Parramatta, inner southwest of Sydney, um, inner city Melbourne. Um, Obviously, Melbourne is our most international city. So um, a a lot of markets were affected there as well. And because those overseas arrivals typically rent when they come here, um, before they purchase, or especially if they're just a short-term visitor of under one year, then it's, it's mainly the rental market. So once we start to open up international borders, you would expect those rental markets to recover. But what's really interesting is that they already did kind of recover over the course of the past two years. Um, initially, we saw a sharp drop-off in rents, a surge in supply of available rents. And then from, I'd say, beginning of 2021, that rental stock, that surplus rental stock started to correct. And most of the markets that saw a decline in value are now at least back at those sort of March 2020 levels. So Mm -hmm. I guess the impact would be that rental markets would see even more of a premium and and really start to grow more robustly, particularly in the short term. If you look at overseas arrival numbers that have come out, we're only at about 10% of the arrival levels that we would see pre-COVID. Um, but a lot of that would be international students. So if you think of your university, towns, um, pockets of the city, um, that's an upside for rental demand. Uh, And if we look at some of the countries of uh, origin that people are coming to Australia from, Singapore has had a really strong bounce back coming, coming to Australia over the past few months. So that means that um, yeah, I guess the markets might be reflecting a, a high return of expatriates and, and university students and things like that.
2: So I've got some stats here, Eliza, that between 06 and 2020, uh, there was more overseas migration occurring to the Australian population than the natural increase, uh, which is births over deaths. When do you see that resuming again like the borders have opened up um and without having a crystal ball is that twenty twenty three is that like i i got the feeling that they they'll be flooding back in at a at a rate of knots um do you think that'll be the case
3: um no, I don't think so i so i it's an interesting um It's something that's really hard to predict, right? So we can't know. But just based on the numbers so far, we know that, um, as I say, we're only at about 10% of the usual overseas arrivals that we were getting pre-COVID. And there are other factors, like NIFIC put out a report arguing that um, people would have to recover their incomes and uh, employment opportunities following the disruption to labour markets internationally um, before they would start international travel again. Um, there's a sense of hesitancy among some travellers and there's still international restrictions. So, um, uh, this, this may have since been updated, but there are certain countries that if you come to Australia, when you get home, you still have to quarantine. And that's because we've had relatively high numbers of, of COVID cases with the rise of Omicron and Delta Cron and all this sort of thing. So from that perspective, Australia is still a bit of a risk um it's far away it can be pretty expensive so i think from that perspective migration might be a bit slower to return
1: and how about i mean when this whole you know pandemic started and certainly I think many people realize we were in for a long haul with it. There was a lot of sea change, tree change happening. So, irrespective of internationals returning, which I think, you know, at some point will impact the market. There was this notion of um, you know, Melbourne people moving up to Queensland and buying because it was so much more affordable and you could get a really big house and the poor Queenslanders were, you know, getting outbid by the main the, the interstate buyers. So, Is there any evidence to suggest that that is still impacting the market or is that sort of very much died down from where that um, interstate changing was happening?
3: Good question. So, I mean, there are some high frequency indicators around migration that suggest it's coming off a little bit, softening a little bit. Um, And I think, you know, once Sydney property prices start to fall and Melbourne property prices start to fall you get a bit more of a pull factor to those cities. So that could offset some of the internal regional migration. But I would say that regional Australia has had almost unrelenting growth. Like we estimate that property values in regional Australia are up almost 40% since March, 2020. It it, it has been a, a, a real structural shift, you know, the normalisation of remote work and um, and and working from home. So, I think that that's something that that will long term keep values quite elevated across regional Australia. Um, the, through February, regions were still showing growth of one point six percent in in the month, compared to a zero point three percent increase across the capitals. So, there's still that big divergence between the two markets um, it, it will soften. so you know if we're expecting a cash rate increase then that that will I would say impact markets broadly but it's just it won't have as much of a dampening effect as what we will see in the capital cities which tend to be a bit more volatile anyway
2: that's an outstanding statement right there Eliza Uh, if you read between the lines you you're basically saying the volatility is now in the cities versus the regionals yet in people's minds it's like well I'm not going to buy regional because uh, it's it's unpredictable and there's not as many people there and all those sort of things but if it comes back from 1.6 to to even 1% Um, over a 12-month period, you don't need to be a mathematician to work out that that's 12% growth. Um, And you, you see that continuing
3: yeah and okay there is a really good point there in that some regional markets are aggressively volatile like if we think of a um resource based market that's you know off of sure. mining projects but broadly i think that the structural change has been big enough not only to push people to live in regions which remember is a big decision in itself uh, and not an easy one to reverse. I, I don't think just because a CBD office opens, you're going to then sell your house in the Tweed or Illawarra region and or, or the peninsula and, and head back to the inner city. So I think it's sticky, that that um, rise of the regions. And what's more is that, you know, given that what we've talked about with climate change and, and whatnot, given that the, the climate conditions are right, um, it presents an opportunity for like a virtuous cycle. If you get more people moving there, you're getting more consumers. More consumers means more job opportunities, which attracts more people. So um, the the opportunity for job and income growth is um, kind of ongoing once you get that initial structural change, which was kind of through COVID and something that I think we didn't, yeah, it's just accelerated that that shift to the regions and it and it was the kick that I think a lot of markets needed.
2: Fantastic insights. Emily, let's finish off with a question from one of the listeners.
1: Yes, indeed, from our Facebook group. Side note, if this is your first time listening to the podcast or you've been a long-time listener and you're not part of the My Millennial money Facebook group, then you need to get in there because that's how we find the questions that you want to ask. That's how we know what experts you'd like us to bring in. All you have to do is put hashtag property or just tag John or myself to check it and you'll get a little shout out. So we did have a question, John, today, didn't we? We did.
2: Rance Clark.
1: Rance Clark.
2: And it's a very good one and I'm interested to know the answer to this as well. If you complete renovations that would typically add value such as adding a patio, would the estimated valuation from RP data based on comparative sales be understated by not including that renovation? How could this impact a seller when most people look at past transactions and comparative sales from RP data and is there any way to update it to factor in renovations?
3: Yeah, Great question. I, I really my guess would be that it, it wouldn't be included in the valuation, but I'd have to yeah. follow that up with product. Sorry.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. So just just for listeners that may not have heard too much about RP Data Core Logic, uh basically as a as an end user, we can use uh the the research and the statistics to go in and type any property in um, to the system and it comes up with an estimated value of that particular property as long as there's enough comparable sales in and around the area for like-for-like product. Is that a fair assessment, Eliza?
3: Yeah. So, I think some of the attributes that are being considered there relate more to um, the the size, the bedrooms, the bathrooms, um, whether it includes something like a patio. I, I, don't think that would be included. So, yeah, it, it's tricky, tricky one to answer. But as I say, I can try and follow up and see if I can get an answer.
2: <laughs> so, so I don't know about you, Emily, but where my head goes with that question from Rance is, okay, a, a desktop valuation or a comparative sale on an RP data report is not going to pick up the enhanced. Uh, renovation of that property, so a full valuation would need to occur where they go out and say, "Oh, there's a new patio there. Great, we're going to add twenty thousand or thirty thousand to the value of this property." So my assessment would be: well, if you want the best uh, valuation for pulling equity or to potentially sell it or, or whatever, you need to get someone out on the ground if it's superior to like for like in that area
1: definitely i mean i don't think you'd be relying on desktop valuation to make a fully informed decision but certainly a ballpark based off as eliza was saying like land size bedrooms bathrooms that those sort of bare minimum components but the things that it can't capture being you know the quality of the products that have been put in there you know maybe it's marble bench tops or um you know enhanced landscaping at the rear those sorts of things particularly when people are going to sell um, outside of getting a, an actual valuation, having an agent come through or multiple agents come through who are familiar with the most recent sales in the area that, you know, could give you an insight of like for like, that's probably going to be your best assessment um, when you go to sell
2: a property. All right. Any, uh, any finishing questions or comments for Eliza or Eliza, if you get anything to add on what we've spoken about today?
3: Um yeah, I guess one thing that's worth adding is uh I think we did get a bit doom and gloom there on the climate change issue as well. Um and talking to some people in the industry, I feel like in on the development side of things, I feel like there is a lot of progress being made in terms of emissions and um sustainability of, of new builds, which is really exciting and actually helping us to move towards that kind of cleaner, better future. So just know <laughs> I guess it's not all doom and gloom and, <laughs> and, and uh, stay positive and, um, yeah, just wishing everyone the very best for this year. I know it's been a really hard few years but fingers crossed that no more
1: big <laughs> tragedies or <laughs> pandemics or
2: <laughs> yeah, no, nothing unforeseen.
1: Is what, well, ideally what we want, we just want to be as smooth sailing as we possibly can be. That'd be Just lovely. <laughs> seeing what happens for the year. But who knows? We'll probably listen back to this episode and go, oh my goodness. I thought good it was all good. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Uh, well, Eliza, thank you so much for jumping on board today and, and sharing your insights. It's um, amazing to speak to someone who, you know, this is your full time role, is uh, analyzing the data and being part of research to do with property market influences, which is amazing. So thank you so much for being generous with your time and insights. You really do appreciate it it um, i'm sure there'll be follow-up questions at some point from um, people who are listening to this episode um, but thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today yeah no worries at all thank you
2: absolutely thanks eliza appreciate it all right everyone that's it for now
1: we'll be back next week as always and if you haven't already go now and join that facebook group my millennial money put your questions in there and we'll be sure to do a QA episode in the coming weeks
0: We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.
2: Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this
1: podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next
2: steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space.
1: And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers.
2: Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today.